Chapter Three of Hunter Patrol by H. Beam Piper and John McGuire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: A Third Outbreak of Bedlam. This time of relief and frantic explanation. Shut up, all of you! For so thin a man, Carl had an astonishing voice. I worked this out, so let me tell it. He turned to Benson. Maybe I'm tougher than the rest of them, or maybe I'm not as deeply conditioned. For one thing, I'm tone-deaf. Well, here's the way it is. Gregory can set the machine to function automatically. You stand where he shows you, press the button he shows you, and fifteen seconds later it'll take you forward in time five seconds and about a kilometer in space to the guide's office. He'll be at his desk now. You'll have forty-five seconds to do the job from the time the field collapses around you till it rebuilds. Then you'll be taken back to your own time again. The whole thing's automatic." "'Can do,' Benson agreed. "'How do I kill him?' "'I'm getting sick,' Paula murmured weakly. Her face was whiter than her gown. "'Take care of her, Samuel. Both of you'd better get out of here,' Gregory said. "'The Lord of Hosts is my strength. He will—' Samuel gasped. Conditioning's getting him, too. We gotta be quick," Carl said. Here, this is what you'll use. He handed Benson a two-inch globe of black plastic. Take the damn thing, quick. Little button on the side. Press it and get it out of your hand fast. He retched. <gasps> Limited effect bomb. Everything within two-meter circle burned to nothing. Outside of that, great, but not unendurable heat. Shut your eyes when you throw it. Flash almost blinding. He dropped his cigar and turned almost green in the face. Walter had a drink poured and handed it to him. Ooh, thanks, Walter. He downed it. Peculiar sort of thing for a non-violent people to manufacture, Benson said, looking at the bomb, and then putting it in his jacket pocket. It isn't a weapon. Industrial. We use it in mining. I used plenty of them in Walter's iron mines." He nodded. "'Where do I stand now?' he asked. "'Right over here.' Gregory placed him in front of a small panel with three buttons. "'Press the middle one, and step back into the small red circle, and stand perfectly still while the field builds up and collapses. Face that way.' Benson drew his pistol and checked it, magazine full, around in the chamber, safety on. "'Put that horrid thing out of sight!' Anthony gasped. "'The—the the other thing is what you want to use.' "'The bomb won't be any good if some of his guards come in before the field rebuilds,' Benson said. "'He has no guards. He lives absolutely alone. We told you—' "'I know you did. You probably believed it, too. I don't.' By the way, you're sending me forward. What do you do about the fact that a time jump seems to make me pass out? Here. Before you press the button, swallow it. Gregory gave him a small blue pill. Well, I guess that's all there is, Gregory continued. I hope— His face twitched, and he dropped to the floor with a thud. Carl and Walter came forward, dragged him away from the machine. Conditioning got him. Getting me, too, Walter said. Hurry up, man. Benson swallowed the pill, 
pressed the button and stepped back into the red circle, drawing his pistol and snapping off the safety. The blue mist closed in on him. This time, however, it did not thicken into blackness. It became luminous, brightening to a dazzle and dimming again to a colored mist, and then it cleared, while Benson stood at Ray's pistol as though on a target range. He was facing a big desk at twenty feet, across a thick-piled blue rug. There was a man seated at the desk, a white-haired man with a mustache and a small beard, who wore a loose coat of some glossy plum-brown fabric and a vividly blue neck-scarf. The pistol centered on the V-shaped blue under his chin. Deliberately Benson squeezed, recovered from the recoil, aimed, fired, recovered, aimed, fired. Five seconds gone. The old man slumped across the desk, his arms extended. Better make a good job of it. Six, seven, eight seconds. He stepped forward to the edge of the desk, call that fifteen seconds, and put the muzzle to the top of the man's head, firing again and snapping on the safety. There had been something familiar about the guide's face, but it was too late to check on that now. There wasn't any face left, not even much of a head. A box on the desk caught Benson's eye, a cardboard box with an envelope stamped Top Secret for the guide only taped to it. He holstered his pistol and caught that up, stuffing it into his pocket, in obedience to an instinct to grab anything that looked like intelligence matter while in the enemy's country. Then he stepped back to the spot where the field had deposited him. He had ten seconds to spare. Somebody was banging on a door when the blue mist began to gather around him. He was crouching, the spherical plastic object in his right hand, his thumb over the button, when the field collapsed. Sure enough, right in front of him, so close that he could smell the very heat of it, was the big tank with the red star on its turret. He cursed the sextet of sanctimonious double-crossers eight thousand miles and fifty years away in space-time. The machine-guns had stopped, probably because they couldn't be depressed far enough to aim at him now. That was a notorious fault of some of the newer pan-Soviet tanks and he rocked back on his heels, pressed the button, and heaved, closing his eyes. As the thing left his fingers, he knew that he had thrown too hard. His muscles, accustomed to the heavier cast-iron grenades of his experience, had betrayed him. For a moment he was closer to despair than at any other time in the whole phantasmagoric adventure. Then he was hit with physical violence by a wave of almost solid heat. It didn't smell like the heat of the tank's engines. It smelled like molten metal, with undertones of burned flesh. Immediately there was a multiple explosion that threw him flat as the tank's ammunition went up. There were no screams. It was too fast for that. He opened his eyes. The turret and top armor of the tank had vanished. The two massive treads had been toppled over, one to either side. The body had collapsed between them and it was running sticky trickles of molten metal. He blinked, rubbed his eyes on the back of his hand, and looked again. Of all the many blasted and burned-out tanks, Soviet and UN, that he had seen, this was the most completely wrecked thing in his experience, and he'd done that with one grenade. At that moment there was a sudden rushing overhead, 
and an instant later the barrage began falling beyond the crest of the ridge. He looked at his watch, blinked, and looked again. That barrage was due at 0550. According to the watch it was 0726. He was sure that, ten minutes ago, when he had looked at it, up there at the head of the ravine, it had been twenty minutes to six. He puzzled about that for a moment, and decided that he must have caught the stem on something and pulled it out and then twisted it a little, setting the watch ahead. Then somehow the stem had gotten pushed back in, starting it at the new setting. That was a pretty far-fetched explanation, but it was the only one he could think of. But about this tank now, he was positive that he could remember throwing a grenade, yet he'd used his last grenade back there at the supply dump. He saw his carbine and picked it up. That silly blackout he'd had for a second there, he must have dropped it. Action was open, empty magazine on the ground where he dropped it. He wondered stupidly if one of his bullets couldn't have gone down the muzzle of the tank's gun and exploded the shell in the chamber. Oh, the hell with it. The tank might have been hit by a premature shot from the barrage which was raging against the far slope of the ridge. He reset his watch by guess and looked down the valley. The big attack would be starting any minute now, and there would be fleeing commies coming up the valley ahead of the U.N. advance. He'd better get himself placed before they started coming in on him. He stopped thinking about the mystery of the blown-up tank, a solution to which seemed to dance maddeningly just out of his mental reach, and found himself a place among the rocks to wait. Down the valley he could hear everything from pistols to mortars going off, and shouting in three or four racial intonations. After a while fugitive communists began coming, many of them without their equipment, stumbling in their haste and looking back over their shoulders. Most of them avoided the mouth of the ravine, and hurried by to the left or right, but one little clump, eight or ten, came up the dry stream-bed, and stopped a hundred and fifty yards from his hiding-place to make a stand. They were Hindus, with outsize helmets over their turbans. Two of them came ahead, carrying the machine-gun, followed by a third with a flamethrower. The others retreated more slowly, firing their rifles to delay pursuit. Cuddling the stock of his carbine to his cheek, he divided a ten-shot burst between the two machine-gunners. Then, as a matter of principle, he shot the man with the flamethrower. He had a dislike for flamethrowers. He killed every enemy he found with one. The others dropped their rifles and raised their hands, screaming, Hey, Joe! Hey, Joe! You no shoot! Me no shoot! A dozen men in U.N. battle dress came up and took them prisoner. Benson shouted to them, and then rose and came down to join them. They were British, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, advertising the fact by inconspicuous bits of tartan on their uniforms. The subaltern in command looked at him and nodded. Captain Benson, we were warned to be on watch for your patrol, he said. Any of the rest of your lads get out? Benson shrugged. We split up after the attack. You may run into a couple of them. Some are locals and don't speak very good English. I've got to get back to division myself. What's the best way? Down that way. You'll overtake a couple of our walking wounded. If you don't mind going slowly, they'll show you the way to advance dressing station. And you can hitch a ride on an ambulance from there." Benson nodded. Off to the left there was a flurry of small arms fire, ending in yells of, Hey, Joe! Hey, Joe! the World War IV version of Kamerad. His company was a non-T.O. outfit, 
He came directly under division command and didn't have to bother reporting to any regimental or brigade commander. He walked for an hour with a half a dozen lightly wounded Scots, rode for another hour on a big cat truck loaded with casualties of six regiments and four races, and finally reached division rear, where both the division and corps commanders took time to compliment him on the part his last hunter patrol had played in the now complete breakthrough. His replacement, an equine-faced Spaniard with an imposing display of fruit salad, was there too. He solemnly took off the bracelet a refugee Caucasian goldsmith had made for his predecessor's predecessor, and gave it to the new commander of what had formerly been Benson's butchers. As he had expected, there was also another medal waiting for him. A medical check at Task Force Center got him a warning. His last patrol had brought him dangerously close to the edge of combat fatigue. Remembering the incidents of the tank and the unaccountably fast watch, and the mysterious box and envelope which he had found in his coat pocket, he agreed, saying nothing about the questions that were puzzling him. The psychology department was never too busy to refuse another case. They hunted patients gleefully, each psych shark seeking in every one proof of his own particular theories. It was with relief that he watched them fill out the red tag which gave him a priority on jet transports for home. Ankara to Alexandria, Alexandria to Dakar, Dakar to Bremen, Bremen to the shattered skyline of New York, the hurry-and-wait procedures at Fort Carlisle, and after the usual separation promotion, Major Fred Benson, late of Benson's Butchers, was back at teaching high school juniors the difference between H2O and H2SO4. There were two high schools in the city, McKinley High on the east side and Dwight Eisenhower High on the west. A few blocks from McKinley was the Tulip Tavern, where the Eisenhower teachers came in the late afternoons. The McKinley faculty crossed town to do their after-school drinking on the west side. When Benson entered the Tulip Tavern on a warm September afternoon, he found Bill Myers, the school psychologist, at one of the tables, smoking his pipe, checking over a stack of aptitude test forms, and drinking beer. He got a highball at the bar and carried it over to Bill's table. Oh, hi, Fred. The psychologist separated the finished from the unfinished work with a sheet of yellow paper and crammed the whole business into his briefcase. I was hoping somebody'd show up. Benson lit a cigarette, sipped his highball. They talked at random, school talk, the progress of the war now in its twelfth year, personal reminiscences of the Turkish theater where Benson had served, and the Madras beachhead where Myers had been. Bring home any souvenirs? Myers asked. Not much. A couple of pistols, a couple of knives, some pictures. I don't remember what all. Haven't gotten around to unpacking them yet. I have a sixth of rye and some beer at my rooms. Let's go round and see what I did bring home. They finished their drinks and went out. What the devil's that? Myers said, pointing to the cardboard box with the envelope taped to it, when Benson lifted it out of the gray-green locker. Bill, I don't know, Benson said. I found it in the pocket of my coat, on the way back from my last hunter patrol. I've never told anybody about this before. That's the damnedest story I've ever heard, and in my racket you hear some honeys, Myers said when he had finished. 
You couldn't have picked that thing up in some other way, deliberately forgotten the circumstances, and fabricated this story about the tank and the grenade and the discrepancy in your watch subconsciously as an explanation. My subconscious is a better liar than that, Benson replied. It would have cobbled up some kind of a story that would stand up. This business— Top secret, for the guide only, Myers frowned. That isn't one of our marks. And if it were Soviet, it'd be trilingual, Russian, Hindi, and Chinese. Well, let's see what's in it. I want this thing cleared up. I've been having some of the nastiest dreams lately. Well, be careful. It may be booby-trapped, Myers said urgently. Don't worry, I will. End of chapter 3